What actions are companies taking to reduce carbon emissions? And how can this impact performance in fixed income markets? We'll find out. Welcome listeners to part two of this episode of Delta, the fixed income podcast brought to you by the International Business of Federated Hermes. Today, we're giving credit to decarbonization, looking at how companies can be attractive investment prospects while reducing their carbon emissions. In part one, we looked at corporate credit. Now we turn to real estate sector to discuss the relationships between emission reduction and the management and financing of properties. Joining me now are Sharon Brown, Director of Real Estate Risk and Responsible Property Management Implementation, and Vincent Noble, Head of Asset-Based Lending. So let's start with you, Sharon. Lockdowns worldwide have stalled activity in many parts of the real estate market, particularly commercial offices and retail properties. Given that working from home and online have become the norm, this has resulted in a temporary reprieve in emissions from the sector but what are some of the long-term initiatives underway that aim to create permanent carbon reduction in these sectors? Well, it's worth noting really that lockdown hasn't necessarily reduced emissions long-term. It's just really put them all on hold. Um, so whilst there's been uh, as much as 25% reduction in energy usage during the period of lockdown in the UK, um, we might start to see some of these benefits actually being reversed as reoccupation takes place. So this could be as a result of the need for increased ventilation requirements or energy usage as systems are flushed, increased cleaning regimes, all implemented as a result of new anti-COVID measures. So the opportunity that Federated Homes saw for uh, emissions reduction was to better understand the base load in our buildings. That is the amount of energy needed to just keep the buildings ticking over um, whilst it was effectively empty. So we've implemented this type of study previously during Christmas shutdowns, for example, but um, a prolonged period of extremely low occupation gave us a much better opportunity of understanding the mechanics of the assets and how we needed to refine them and how we needed to better our operations so that we could generate maximum efficiency from that baseload. So coming at a time when absolutely needs to be a recognition of the long-term impact of climate change and the need to manage carbon emissions in the pathway to net zero operation, um, we're taking the learnings that we've had from COVID and the potential large unexpected shocks to our estate and recognising really how we need to be more resilient. So longer term, the enforced trial period of remote working for businesses might force industry to consider the future of office spaces and the potential resultant to carbon impact of reduced commuting. So if remote working becomes the norm, you might have some benefits from that, improved work-life balance. I'm sure that although it's been challenging at times, we've all enjoyed additional hours in the evenings to spend with our families. And the resultant potential well-being, mental health impacts, etc., as well as reduced commute carbon emissions. However, from a net zero perspective, we need to really fully understand the consequential impacts this might have. So there may be an impact of future retrofits for changes in existing office stock over the next five to ten years, for example as occupancy reduces potentially, and therefore we might need to reduce and replace existing uh, M&E systems, which have not been designed for low occupancy level. So we'll see their efficiency diminished. So whilst there are short-term benefits and some longer-term benefits, we don't really yet know what the full impact will be. And that's going to be a piece of study over the next up to five years, I would suggest. Great, Sharon. Thank you very much for that. And you know, it definitely reminds me that this has been a catalyst for us to look at many of the things that we thought of as 
norms and, and permanent norms. Uh, but you guys in the real estate team at the International Business of Federated Hermes have been looking at responsible property investment for some time now, uh, since 2008, I think. So in those 12 years, what have you learned about the link between carbon and long-term investment returns within this real estate sector? Well, carbon and energy management are kind of embedded throughout our operations. So when we speak about the risks to carbon and energy, we're looking at a range of impacts to the operations. So by having a good handle on how your buildings are run and how if energy efficiency pays off in a way of recognising inefficient building management and costs which can then be streamlined. So we've seen the improvement in operations result in more refined health and wellbeing features with buildings as we run them. And we run them deliberately as they were set up to be run through effective control and ongoing monitoring of central building management systems, rather than how they may have been manipulated to run um, maybe for 24-7 when it's not really needed. What this actually results in is a more efficient, lower cost to operate building, which are more comfortable, which uh, have a better longevity because systems within the buildings are not being used outside of their design parameters. And that eventually will lead to a more positive relationship with occupants. So then there's the benefit for both the investor because they have a well-run asset with a longer life expectancy and fewer ongoing costs. And the occupier who benefits from a healthy, low-cost building environment, they want to stay in the building as turnover of tenant reduces and void rates reduce. So reputationally, this then also benefits you as you start to become the landlord of choice for more and more occupiers, which by itself will see your portfolio portfolio value increase. So you mentioned that we've been doing this since 2008. Um, and the targets that we set in 2008 was to reduce our carbon emission across the landlord control directly manageable portfolio by 40% set against that 2008 baseline. And it's measured as an ab absolute. So that wasn't accounting for the tra transactional ebb and flow of the active real estate portfolio. But you have to remember that back then it was quite unusual to set such targets. And the, certainly the science and how to measure the activities was nowhere near as advanced as it is now. And it's still evolving now. So, I mean, you know, ask me this question in another 12 years and you might get a slightly different set of answers. So we first achieved our target in 2012, but that was really as much of a result of divestment strategy at the time um, as, as through active carbon management activities. So we ramped it up. We looked at the energy we were using. We looked at what we were purchasing and what we needed to do to improve the asset and how operational activity could be better controlled. So fast forward to 2018, and through this active programme of building management, through controlling our base loads, through introducing clear and transparent data streams to share with occupiers, I mean, upgrading our older building systems, and we've achieved an emissions target of more than 10% below that 2008 baseline, which is a phenomenal achievement. And in 2019, we improved that by a further 25%. All this time, where our, our our key investments have continued to improve their value and in some cases improved their peer group ratings as well. So outperforming over the benchmarks for three, five and 10 years. So there's a clear line between operational efficiency, reducing your carbon um, intensities and then demonstrating that your asset is worth more through better asset management, through better rents, through higher occupancy rates and through just through general better investment portfolio. Superb, Sharon. That's really, really helpful. So, you know, just drawing a couple of themes out from that, um, thinking more carefully about the way in which you uh, work with occupiers and manage these portfolios and, and 
portfolios of properties and properties themselves, trying to bring a slightly higher level of diversity to use types, uh, brings down void periods, improves the quality of the experience for the occupiers. And all of that, I guess you're saying, leads to or is at least related to improvements in property value. That's really, really interesting. So as a manager of properties, there's only so much we can do directly about carbon reduction and reduction in carbon emissions when we're letting those buildings out to others. How can we take it to the next level? And how can we engage with occupiers to reduce their emissions? Well, you, you, you're you quite right. I mean, we, we can only do so much. Um, landlord areas in some uh, some of the properties are very, very small. And you'll notice I said our 2008 uh, targets were set for landlord controlled areas. And that's very that was very deliberate because that's where we knew we could collect data and we knew that we could actually drive the efficiencies. By implementing energy management activities through active engagement and, and often with learning programs with occupiers, so they may not be um, very knowledgeable about what's out there, what they can do. And by investing in certain changes within their environment, it actually might be a long term saving for them. So you're looking at directly impacting on what they need to, to, to save on. So cost at the moment, particularly post-COVID-19, is, is really high up there for most occupiers. So if you can show them by energy management, in fact, carbon emission programs, that they're actually going to save money through their utility bills, then that's a really good way of getting them on board, especially for some of the smaller occupier types um you know the single office lets that that sort of type of occupier which we have a vast number of across our portfolio um for example in a number of the multi-occupied office buildings we've got across the portfolio we've actually got a structured energy management scheme which has been developed over a number of years and is before it's implemented agreed with occupiers through active negotiations so through occupier engagement uh, meetings on a quarterly basis it, it's up there and it's discussed so where there's capital funding are required in the form of maybe a system upgrade for example to be able the, to allow the monitoring to take place then this has been agreed with ongoing management costs and it then forms part of uh, as agreed with occupiers of their service charge so the benefits for the investors and the occupiers alike is it's demonstrated in a business plan so this illust- illustrates what the initial outlay is against the payback they might get against any utility bill savings so the business plan is always set for three years, but our experience is that the majority of these schemes achieve a payback within 18 months. So you're getting the benefit of energy saving you get, and therefore carbon emission reduction. You're getting a, a structured payment in a service charge, which is pre-agreed and reduced energy bills. And the balance is that you tend to get more savings in the utility bills than the overall service charge increase. So it's a win-win situation there. Um, more recently, obviously, as, as technology and science improves, we've been in discussion with occupiers at a number of buildings about integrating smart technology, which then provides an overall building service. So that will enable them to do anything from ordering dry cleaning services to managing their energy usage. And then there's a transparency of information which they can see on a screen in their office or on their computers or on apps and all the technology that is now available that wasn't available in 2008. So the cooperation is in occupier meetings, regular newsletters, and they get to get to work together as occupiers of one building to improve the environment they share. So there's a you can't do it without your occupiers. You know, you don't control every space in that building. So you, you absolutely have to get them on board. Sharon, thank you very much. I can 
feel the energy coming through the airwaves. Turning to Vincent Noble now um, and thinking about investment on the, on the fixed income side, what extent are carbon considerations being written into real estate agreements, not only for financing construction projects, but for refurbishments and loans? Tell us a little bit about how much you bring of that to our credit committees these days, Vincent. Well, I think the reality is that the real estate industry as a whole uh, is only really now waking up, I think, to decarbonization. And the fact that, that we were at it uh, 12 years ago is really uh, quite exceptional, I think. Um, so for a lot of the, the, the projects that we're working on, we don't see that sort of emphasis on decarbonization that we would like to see. And so our role as a lender is a bit of a balance between uh, advocating for a structured program uh, as well as uh, having that trade-off between how far can you insist on that uh, before your offer becomes less competitive than another lender who basically doesn't care about it so much. Um, and so the truth is some of our borrowers are very sophisticated. They're very happy to share with us uh, the, the data that they produce about how they are uh, looking to decarbonize, also other environmental uh, um, initiatives uh, and and they're often very proud of that and they're very willing to share it uh, for others um, I think quite similar to what Nachu was saying in part one of this episode they're only just starting to think about it and haven't even really got to grips with how they would even measure it um, and so the truth is it's a real mixed bag uh, getting the information from borrowers that are a little bit further ahead I think is relatively easy and as lenders we can really uh, push that Building it into covenants, I think, is where it does become an issue. And I think it touches upon uh, Sharon's last point, really, which is, you know, as a lender, we are one step further removed from the occupier uh, than, than Sharon is on the equity side. And so if I'm requiring my borrower to make improvements on parts of the building that they don't directly control, you can understand why they are perhaps uh, hesitant to sign up to that if I can default the loan if they don't meet that target. Uh, and so this is really, uh, I mean, the first of many instances, I think, where we see that there are so three key stakeholders, the lender, the borrower, who is also the landlord, and the occupier, who need to jointly uh, find solutions uh, to this. And I think borrowers meeting certain of these hurdles also then expect something in return. This is, after all, a contract. And so they achieve that. They want a margin reductions. And that can be difficult for, for us as lenders to, uh, to give if our mandate isn't specifically impact-driven. Um, so I think in some ways we are at the start of this. What we have seen clearly um, is that there is a, a momentum now. But let's think of the bulk of the transactions that we do are probably with private equity-style investors on a three-year horizon. And climate change is a, is a 10, 20, 30, 40-year horizon. So for a lot of them, it the investment horizon may be too short to make real progress, and that's the bit that we really want to change. And so it's a, it's a mixed bag, really. Got it, Vincent. Um, but I've definitely seen you have influence on the behaviour of borrowers related to emissions reductions. Let's just you know we we, we try within this podcast to be to be real with our listeners. Have you ever turned down a deal? due to concerns about emissions? We turn down deals all the time on a number of ESG uh, issues. 
emissions specifically, it's quite difficult to do that because when you receive information about a property, the only thing that gives you any sort of hint in that direction usually is the EPC certificate or energy performance certificate. Uh, and actually, the sad thing is that the rating that a building gets on that certificate is actually not that heavily linked to how much the emissions are. So it can be quite difficult early on in the process to weed out those assets that are uh, that are not good. Of course, you know, as we go through due diligence, we do see these, and if there are real concerns, then we can turn them down. But often, by the time we get to that point, we will have weeded out so many so many of the transactions that would have really been bad. Uh, that it's hard to point to a specific asset that we've turned down uh, for that reason. Uh, and of course, the reason why we might turn it down is not just uh, ethical. It's, it's a clear impact on our credit if the asset is is weak in that respect. The occupational costs are higher because it's a very inefficient building. Uh, clearly, that is bad, not just for the landlord, but also for us in our position. So I think the honest answer is specifically for emissions, no, we haven't. Um, but I think as this topic becomes more and more uh, mainstream, uh, we'll find more and more where that specifically is the reason we might not do, do the deal. Yeah, it goes back. The, the risk that you alluded to there goes back a little to what Sharon was saying about the, the value of the underlying property can be damaged if, if, the, if the borrower is not aware of the impact on emissions on you know, the, the property itself. And, and those values are what we're relying on in making our, our lending uh, decision. The flip side is, of course, that you know, if you put excluding those who are, who are lagging to one side, there's probably potential for us to improve carbon performance through engagement, right? So tell me about the other side of the equation where you lend to somebody and you work with them. Well, absolutely. And this is, I think, where, where it gets really interesting. There are really, I think, three ways to reduce carbon emissions, uh, or three steps, you might say, and that's demand reduction, efficiency improvements, and, and carbon offsetting. And they come in that order. Demand reduction is really the key issue, and this is all about engagement and, and advocacy. So the first thing to do really is to move to a green tariff. Now, that might seem very simple, and it is very simple, um, but a lot of people don't realize that that can have a huge effect on the carbon emissions of a building. In some cases, it very much depends on the building, but in some cases, that could be as much as half of the carbon emissions just by uh, by taking that out. Of course, green energy is still a little bit more expensive, and you run into the same issue again that we mentioned earlier, which is that the, uh, the tenant pays for it, uh, even though it might be the landlord uh, electing the, uh, the, the energy provider. Um, and so the lender, the borrower, and the tenant, they're all these key stakeholders uh, whose financial interests are not always aligned. Similarly, CapEx spent on a building uh, might make it more efficient. And unless you can put it into the service charge, which in some cases, as Sharon also mentioned, you can, but unless you can do that, it will cost the landlord money and save the tenant money. And so it's that uh, the triad again. And the second avenue, of course, is efficiency improvements. And this is often where... Uh, where capex is required and we do see a lot of that stuff coming through because you know we fund refurbishments and those types of projects all the time um and and when we do that of course you know it does take two to tango we want uh, the borrower to be on board with the general aims that, that we want to put into these buildings so we want to see a building after refurbishment being more efficient um, a lot of progress has been made on that people do generally adhere to very high standards but a lot of work still remains
That's really great. Thank you very much, Vincent. Definitely feels like there are quite a few themes that are running through everything that we're discussing in part one and part two. Um, But one of the things that's very pressing within real estate, which maybe isn't quite so pressing in um, the broader corporate community, is the social pressures which are being caused by the pandemic and the knock-on effects that that's having on the real estate market. So where do carbon emissions now sit in the ranking of ESG importance when we think about real estate? Have they been knocked down or has this crisis and the climate emergency actually come further into focus for you? Um, Well, real estate is a very high user of of energy and, and a lot of that is fossil fuels. So it is still very high on the agenda. I think the truth really is, you know, it comes down to, you know, when did Noah build the ark? You know, it's, it's before the flood. And though this may be a different reason than we anticipated, we always knew that some sort of recession w- would be coming at some point. And Sharon said it already, companies are focusing heavily on their costs. Occupational cost is a big part of that. And of course, if energy costs are a lot lower than they are in another building, that, that asset will be more valuable in terms of, uh, of how much rent people are willing to pay for that. Um, and so we fully believe that the efficient buildings perform better in, in a recession than inefficient buildings. And Sharon's data has already uh, shown us that this works. And we can see this quite clearly, I think, in, in markets that are a little bit more homogenous. Um, you say London city offices or maybe just the St. Paul's area. People that want to locate there uh, and they need a certain amount of space, they will find a handful of buildings that might meet those requirements. All of those buildings will be close to public transport and will have you know all the things that they want. And so what's left to differentiate them? Um, at some point, the energy usage of a building uh, becomes a lot more important. Understood. Thank you for that, Vincent. It, it does feel like um, we're... we're painting a relatively positive story for a fixed income podcast here that that actually there are things that are occurring below the surface that are almost virtuous by nature you know doing something about the the property uh, working with the occupiers of the property working with the, the borrower in your instance vincent all is good for for pretty much everybody the ocu- occupier the borrower and the lender in that respect. And and that's one of the things that I think strikes me most about the way in which we're engaging with and working with um, owners of these properties and occupiers of these properties to deliver something which uh, is an imperative for us from a moral perspective, but also appears to start to become an imperative from a financial and performance perspective. Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for joining me. Now I'm going to turn to all options on the table, which, Vincent, you know uh, we always have on on the, the Delta. Um, but for you, Sharon, just a reminder, we have a question coming in uh, from an audience member, and they ask us any question. They can ask us any question. We pick it up. Uh, we recently had a client call, fixed income client call, and the question asked was, what would you like to see next on the pathway to decarbonization. And you can talk about companies, you can talk about markets, you can talk about governments, you can talk about policymakers, the choice is yours. So I'll share my answer in a second. What's your wish, Sharon, as to what needs to come next on that pathway to decarbonization? 
Well, I think that there's, there's two elements to it, really. Firstly, I think we need some full transparency and honesty and recognition that we are in a global emergency. Um, I don't think necessarily everybody accepts that yet. Um, and until we do, then we're never really going to get to what we need to 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 save save the world. Let's be let's be frank about this. We, you know, we 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 need to save the earth. Um, and I think it was, it was naturally in the first part he was talking about government support for initiatives. And I agree. I think we need to look for t- for support in terms of potentially grants or funding to assist, particularly the smaller occupier. Because my experience is that they feel that to implement some of what they need to reduce their carbon um, is is an unnecessary expense or an impossible expense in some of their cases. So if there was some form of funding or some sort of assistance which could help them to make those operational changes and make the change of into the business activity without adversely affecting their short-term income so they were able to focus on the longer-term benefits, um, I think that's what really what we need to see. But for, for my, my main hope is that actually we start to recognise this for the emergency it really is and all start to work together to try and get somewhere to, uh, to stop it. One nice thing for you, Sharon, is, of course, that we've proved through this COVID-19 crisis that those kind of schemes can be implemented relatively rapidly if the need is there. And, you know, it's simply a matter of control C, control V, copying and pasting the support mechanisms for, you know, short term expenditure uh, for those smaller occupiers that you refer to, that the, the, the pipes are already in place. Let's use them again for this climate emergency. Excellent points. Thank you, Sharon. Vincent? Um, I look at climate change as very much an intergenerational justice issue. And I think Aaron referred to that as well. Uh, and the problem I find with that is that there's a sort of lack of contract between the parties. So you basically have a deal between those who are here and now and those who are not represented at all, the future generations. They are a key stakeholder in this with no voice. And I think that the way I would like this to be solved is that really we look at this first and foremost as a moral and ethical issues issue, which brings it into the sphere of politics and everyday life. Of course, political cycles are typically too short to deal effectively with long-term problems. Uh, And so real and lasting solutions, I think, has to have to come from a a broad mindset change. You might almost say a sort of grassroots style movement that pushes this change in behavior. I think when people are faced with such enormous challenges, um, they often ask, you know, what can I do about it? What should I do? Um, I think the answer is pretty universally the same. It's you do what you can. Now, for me, uh, as a member of the advisory board for the Commercial Real Estate Finance Council, or CREFSI, uh, I'm working with my colleagues there on a green lending best practice guide. Green lending doesn't purely focus on carbon, but uh, that is obviously a large part of it and will be a larger part of it as we go forward. Um, and so we'd, we'd like to put that out to, to show people that you know, this is what a sort of best practice for this uh, area is like. And I think that as people will see that, uh, more and more, uh, I think not just this initiative, but others as well, more and more people will see that actually green lending isn't so unique or so special. It really uh, has sustainability principles embedded in it that should fit all loans, not just uh, the small subset. Great, Vincent. Thank you very much for that. And and I'll have a go as well. And it's not on a, a dissimilar theme. But for me, um, I want governments to issue bonds with coupons associated with the progress they make in meeting the targets 
enshrined in the Paris Agreement. And the reason I want that is because I think it's time for us as um, a species to recognize that only by forcing our governments to take this issue seriously uh, will we impact change um, rather than just continue to debate whether we are going to impact change. And the way in which we do that is we enshrine it in documents and we shame those who do not enshrine it in documents and we reward those who do enshrine it in documents. I think that's achievable. I think it's something we can do. And I'm certainly putting my shoulder to the wheel in terms of pushing for governments to issue climate change related bonds and to give them a discount if they do what they say they're going to do. So thank you very much, Sharon. Thank you very much, Vincent, for joining me today. That was episode 13, part two uh, of the Fixed Income podcast brought to you by the International Business Federated Hermes. Today, we talked about decarbonization, both in corporate credit and real estate markets. And we explored the connection between improving carbon performance and financial returns. My three key takeaways for the second half of episode 13 were really what Sharon was describing as the sort of relationship between improvements in void rates, improvements in diversity of occupancy and working with occupiers towards delivering actually improvements in returns. Uh, real estate investors can improve their returns by doing good at the underlying level. And that sounded very similar to what Aaron was saying in part one. Also, what uh, Vincent was saying about the challenges of going into a conversation with a borrower with carbon emissions at the front of your conversation, um, maybe that's a little challenging, but once you're in those kind of conversations with the borrower, you can influence very heavily. And again, the similarities between what we're saying on the corporate side and what, what we're saying on the real estate side um, really strike me. But the third is exactly the same third um, takeaway as I had in the first part of episode 13, which is that there do appear to be glimmers of hope out there, that this crisis has shone a light on our ability to make change and our ability to impact change. Uh, the climate crisis is a crisis that needs to be averted and we need to get on with it right now. Um, so all of you who are listening today, please uh, write in, talk to us, send us your experience and um, let's all work on this together. I look forward to speaking to you all again on episode 14. Trade well, stay well, speak to you then. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.